You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Bloomberg, sound on. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff says that President Trump thinks he's above the law. The latest on the public impeachment inquiry hearings today. Another round of hearings, day five of the hearings continuing on Capitol Hill. Meanwhile, President Trump going to sign that Hong Kong bill despite... China's threats, what it means for the Washington-Beijing trade talks. Will they finally get to a deal, or is it now all up in smoke? And fallout from the 2020 Democratic presidential campaign, just less than 24 hours after the fifth Democratic presidential debate. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I'm back in Washington, D.C., following our special coverage of the fifth Democratic presidential debate. Garrett Ventry's here, former spokesman for Senator Chuck Grassley and the Senate Judiciary Committee of Republican Insider. Max Burns returns. He's holding down the fort for us in the Big Apple at Bloomberg World Headquarters. He's a Democratic strategist, a contributor at the Daily Beast and the Independent. And Emily Wilkins makes her Bloomberg Radio Sound On debut. She is a Bloomberg government congressional reporter, all-star panel, lots of news to decipher. But first, I just landed back at uh, Reagan a couple of hours ago. Got here for the show. Max is, of course, a Democratic strategist. Emily Wilkins. Bloomberg government congressional reporter. You've been busy, Emily. Uh, Just a little bit. So what's the big headline from today? Fiona Hill, the former national security director for Europe and Russia, and David Holmes, a foreign service officer at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, testifying before the House Intelligence Committee. Em, what did they say? They said a lot of very interesting things. Uh, (laughs) One thing that's probably good to highlight is Fiona Hill calling uh, Gordon Sondland. She said classified his work in Ukraine as, I believe, a domestic policy errand. She sort of really highlighted that there was this separation between what he was doing versus what sort of a more traditional foreign policy channel would be. Interesting. All right. Well, let's take a listen to what David Holmes had to say, because he testified publicly today that he heard President Trump ask about the investigation. Take a listen. I then heard President Trump ask, so he's going to do the investigation. Ambassador Sondland replied that he's going to do it. 
adding that President Zelensky will do anything you ask him to do. That was in reference to that July 2009, the, the July phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky with, for withholding aid in exchange for Zelensky and the Ukrainians to look into the Bidens. He went on to really discuss in first time publicly that military aid bribe, as Democrats are describing it, uh, foreign policy objective, as Republicans are saying. Here he is. Take a listen to more Holmes. My clear impression was that the security assistance hold was likely intended by the president either as an expression of dissatisfaction with the Ukrainians, who had not yet agreed to the Burisma Biden investigation, or as an effort to increase the pressure on them to do so. Garrett Ventry, Republican insider, you hear that. Does it make you uncomfortable? Does it change Republicans' calculations at all? Or is this just another development and not changing the status quo of the impeachment? I don't think it's going to change the status quo of the impeachment. I think at this point, it's going to be, it's going to be even Republicans like Will Hurd, who have said people think he's gettable on impeachment. Today, he even threw some, some cold water on that. So I think what you're going to see is Democrats are going to continue to try and get as much unflattering information that they can out of these witnesses. And a lot of them are hearing the second and third hand, let's keep in mind. And the second part of this, Republicans will probably continue to go after the process, continue to go after those folks who are saying this had no direct relationship with the president. And I think that's what you're going to see going forward. I, mean, I don't think it's going to change everywhere. minds. I mean, I mean, just anecdotally, I'm on that flight from Atlanta, the right. ATL to Reagan. Literally all the TVs on the plane sure. were on the impeachment. I'm thinking, you can't, I can't escape this. It's everywhere. Every screen is the impeachment. You mentioned Will Hurd. He's the Republican Texas member of the House Intelligence Committee. Here's what he said. Uh, here's what he said today. Here's Will Hurd, Congressman Will Hurd. An impeachable offense should be compelling overwhelmingly clear and unambiguous, and it's not something to be rushed or taken lightly. I have not, not heard evidence proving the president committed bribery or extortion. I also reject the notion that holding this view means supporting all the foreign policy choices we have been hearing about over these last few weeks. That was Congressman Will Hurd, a Republican from Texas. Max Burns, he says it's not impeachable. I take it you disagree. This is the, the danger of believing that moderate Republicans are going to be the salvation for anything, because Will Hurd is trying to have it both ways here, saying Trump's behavior was reprehensible, that he doesn't agree with the decisions, that it was inappropriate. But Will Hurd's not going to do anything about it, because at the end of the year, he's out of Congress and he has to worry about his next political move. Uh, and, well, well, I think it's true that this doesn't change any votes in the Senate necessarily, uh, Fiona Hill's testimony absolutely, I think, changes the temperature in the country just because of how strong it was, how, how clear she came out in her opening statements that something was wrong, that attempts to stop it were ignored and sidelined. And to have Will Hurd say this is bad but not bad enough is really just milquetoast stuff. You know, she described, you're mentioning uh, Fiona Hill, and, and at one point during the hearing, and if we have it to our control room KO, the Fiona Hill Sondland in charge soundbite, uh, she essentially laid out in clear terms the dynamics. It was a rare look inside of what was going on as it relates to foreign policy. Here she is. Take a listen, Fiona Hill, on the dynamics of the State Department. He said that he was in charge of Ukraine. And I said, well, who put you in charge, uh, Ambassador Sondland? And he said, the president. He said, the president. He said, the president. Emily Wilkins, what did you make of her t of that, that specific, of her, her characterization of the dynamics of, of how the White House was running foreign policy on Ukraine? 
I think it goes back a little bit to what I said before and, and to what other uh, others who have come before the committee have alluded to, this fact that there are sort of these two channels, that there was this one channel that was sort of the a formal, official, diplomatic channel, and then there was this other channel where you saw Rudy Giuliani, where you saw others sort of be more focused uh, on, you know, trying to get Ukraine to investigate the president's rival. Max, how do you think Speaker Pelosi's been playing this? I think this has been excellent the entire way, and you can see that in the way that she's gotten so deep into the heads of Jim Jordan and Donald Trump, that her narratives are now permeating every part of their questioning, parts of Donald Trump's tweets. Uh, If the goal here is to keep everyone off balance uh, that's trying to defend the president, she's doing an excellent job of that. Garrett, what, what do you? Th- how do you think, as a Republican, how do you think Speaker Pelosi's handling all this? Obviously, disagree. Yeah, surprising. But no. why, why uh, so? But, I mean, not I, on I, policy, but in sure, terms of no, the I, politics of this. The, the, the here's, here's, of there's it. two reasons. Number one is when she opened this, when she said she was going to open an inquiry into impeachment, she said this would be bipartisan. The only thing bipartisan about it was two Democrats joining Republicans to vote against it. So that's number one. Number two, a recent poll came out yesterday in Wisconsin showing the that impeachment, the support for it is dropping, and the president is beating four of his top opponents in the 2020 Dem field. Which poll was that? That was, uh, it, was a poll in, it was a poll in Milwaukee. I'll get you, um, yep. It was a Wisconsin poll showing polling in Wisconsin. Then an Emerson poll came out today, 45% don't support impeachment, 43% do. So it's actually dropping in the court of public opinion as well. Uh, take a listen to Speaker Pelosi and what she had to say today about, about the Holmes testimony. Here's Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. You never know what testimony of one person may lead to the need for testimony of another, as we saw with Ambassador Taylor at the beginning of last week, uh, bringing forth Mr. Holmes today. Uh, are, are, are you starting to hear quietly at all, Emily, that that there's pressure on Speaker Pelosi that to, to make sure that other policy items get through in the next three months as it relates to USMCA, as it relates to government funding? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've seen a lot of the Democrats who are going to be facing really tough elections in 2020, particular yeah. Democrats who are freshmen, really standing up and saying to the Speaker, hey, you know, we need to get something done. There was a meeting last week where a number of them stood up and said it. There was another meeting this week where a number of them stood These up. These are newly elected Dems. Yes, and they are Who? One... Do you have any off the top of your head? I'm oh, sorry man. to put you on the no, spot. No, no, absolutely. Uh, we have Cindy Axney from Iowa. We have Abigail Spanberger from Virginia. Huh. Uh, we have uh, Anthony Bendrisi from New York. And I mean, the key thing, interesting thing about all of these guys is that they won districts in 2018 that Trump carried in 2016. Yeah. So they, their constituents They're are They're the reason Democrats have control of the House of Representatives. Absolutely. So what are they saying to Pelosi? Are they saying, hey, you got to get this done, or, or, or is it is it like take us behind the scenes? Sure. So a lot of them want to get it done by the end of the year, and we've known that this is a request that they've had for a while. Now they're starting to sort of turn up the pressure. They're saying, "Hey, we're really close to getting something. What we've got now is way better, or what we're going to get with USMCA as we have it." now is way better than what we currently have. There's that, you know, we're so close. Let's try and just get this done. Although I will say, when I was talking to Representative Cindy Axney, I was trying to get her to say, hey, you know, do you need this done by the end of the year? And she was saying, look, we're apparently at the five-yard line right now. If by the end of December we're at the three-yard line or the two-yard line, she's like, that's good for me. We just hey, need I'm to an Eagles fan. That's not good enough. You got to get in the end zone, Em. You got to get in the end zone, get it across 
the end zone. Uh, coming up, panel stays. I got those polls that Garrett was talking about, so we'll talk about the 2020 race and the polls as it relates to impeachment. Really interesting polls, Garrett. Uh, panel stays. Garrett Ventry, Max Burns up in New York, Emily Wilkins. Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Ah, sorry. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Going to take a deep breath. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. We have a criminal living in the White House. I have made it very clear that this is impeachable conduct, and I've called for an impeachment proceeding. Anyone who wants to give me a big donation, don't ask to be an ambassador because I'm not going to have that happen. But we cannot simply be consumed by Donald Trump, because if we are, you know what, we're going to lose the election. Well, the constitutional process of impeachment should be beyond politics, and it is not a part of the campaign, but the president's conduct is. And uh, by the way, I learned something about these impeachment trials. I learned, number one, that Donald Trump doesn't want me to be the nominee. That's pretty clear. That was uh, the impeachment montage that our that our uh, hardworking team up at Bloomberg headquarters put together for us from last night's Atlanta debate. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. And, and just anecdotally, I'm not going to say which campaign. It was uh, on background. One of the staffers said that there was not a lot of energy in the spin room compared with the other debates. And then I was looking at the, the ratings on this from uh, Mediate. And Justin, MSNBC Democratic debate, br- debate brings in the lowest ratings to date. According to early Nielsen numbers, more than 6.5 million viewers tuned in to watch the debate in Atlanta, including 1.6 million in the advertiser coveted 25 to 54 demo. It's a lot of viewers, but it's a marked downturn from the 8.5 mil that watched the October debate in CNN. Uh, This is according to Mediate's reporting. Garrett Ventry's here. He's a Republican insider. Max Burns is up in New York for us. He's a Democratic strategist. Emily Wilkins, Bloomberg government congressional reporter. Max, how come nobody watched the debate? I mean, can you blame him? We had the longest day of <laughs> wow. impeachment Even Garrett, ever. You got Garrett to laugh. Garrett's like a <laughs> as 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 you know, stone cold as they come, and he's cracking a smile at what you're saying, Max. Go ahead, buddy. This was was a forgettable debate for an exhausted country that had just just watched. <laughs> I, you know what? I would agree. I too am exhausted. Go ahead. I think we had just watched two marathon sets of impeachment hearings. This was on at nine o'clock. Uh, <laughs> We're talking yeah. Medicare for all again, as if there's still more to say about <laughs> Max it. Max is the Democrat on the panel. <laughs> I mean, Garrett, go ahead. I mean, defend the Dems for us, Garrett. <laughs> Listen, I would love for them to talk more and more. It's great for us. No, I'm just kidding. No, I agree. I think I think people are fatigued because, I mean, impeachment was on for 30 hours, like an office marathon, and then you had, <sighs> you know. I was saying this. Two, it starts at 9 p.m. on a third. I mean, who wants to stay up till 11 to to watch that. I mean, You're there's just other great much, shows. I say this, I'm, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't sleep, but it's bad. But I, um, you know, you know, I was, Emily and I were, were talking, this is Emily's first time on the program. She's our Bloomberg government congressional reporter. You grew up in suburban Detroit. I grew up in suburban Philly. And I, I was a political junkie, but I was thinking in the spin room yesterday, I was like, if I was growing up and had to follow the 2020 campaign, monitor impeachment, just for folks all over the country, swing voters who are, you know, feeding their kids, 
working a full-time job, right. dealing with life, and the news out of Washington is so incredibly intense. I mean, absolutely. I mean, but for the impeachment hearings, I mean, they take place during the middle of the day, right? People are at work, people are at school, right. people are going about doing their things. I think sort of where the impeachment hearings, the public ones really play out, are the clips that are used over and over again on, say, the morning news or the evening news. That's sort of, you know, where they get their optics from. I mean, the debates, yeah, this is what, the fourth one? Fifth one? Forgive me. Fifth. I've lost fifth. Forgive me. I've I lost love the debates. See? <laughs> Buttigieg went after Gabbard. That was like the highlight of, of, of my night. Yeah. And I'm going to play for you some of the sound. Uh, I thought Senator Amy Klobuchar, speaking of the debate, had a really solid night, and I caught up with her in the uh, in the, uh, spin, the spin room. That's what it's called <laughs> at the Tyler Perry Studios at the Whoopi Goldberg soundstage. All of the sound stages are named after famous actors or, or actresses. Uh, so take a listen to what Amy Klobuchar said about her experience level and contrasting that with if Pete Buttigieg was a female, if he would be able to be running for president with his level of experience. Here she is. And I think it's really important for women, if we're going to get in power, including in the boardroom, for people to start talking about the fact that we're not going to look like any of the other presidents. Mm. And I wanted to take that on in a big way. I thought she had a good night, Max, but I mean, I guess if no one's watching, it doesn't really matter. And Amy Klobuchar is a compelling candidate. She, she had some funny moments. She talked very substantively about women's issues, child care, family leave. Uh, but when you have this, this issue of people just not tuning in, that really plays to the strength of the top four to the detriment of everybody else. And that's not something new. We saw after the last debate, Emerson showed that 75% of likely caucus goers in Iowa skipped watching the last debate. I mean, with when you're playing to 10 or 20% of the base, that's really hard to move numbers in a big way. Yeah, I was, that's a great point. And, and Garrett, you brought up these polls earlier. I got them in front of me. I, lo I love these polls. I'm a poll guy. <laughs> um, according to the new Marquette Law School poll, former Vice President Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren, and South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg trail President Trump in Wisconsin. Wow. Trump beats Biden in Wisconsin 47% to 44%. He's got that same lead uh, over Sanders, and, uh, and it has a wider lead against Warren, 48% to 43%, and Buttigieg 47% to 39%. Wow. Garrett, those numbers got to make you feel pretty good. They do. And, I mean, I think when you look at these – I mean, the states that are going to decide the election, you're looking at Wisconsin, you're looking at Ohio, you're looking at Florida, you're Michigan, looking at Michigan, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. And so, I mean, that's obviously a, a key indicator that in that poll, voters are also showing, I mean, people are polled in this poll are also showing that impeachment, the support of it is dropping. So I don't think it's necessarily, I think it's pretty interesting that impeachment is dropping support in uh Wisconsin and his poll numbers are rising and he's beating the top four candidates there. The Emerson, so it's obviously very good news for the president. The Emerson College poll that came out just earlier today, a new national survey, 45% are opposed to impeaching President Trump, 43% are supporting it. So those numbers are split, but it's a swing in right. favor of Republicans, Max. I mean, are you seeing something different or, I mean, when you, when you hear those two polls, and look, polls are, are snapshots. All right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying polls are yep. be-all, end-alls. But, but, you know, these are polls that, you know, are looking good for Trump in the White House. Yeah, I certainly don't count Donald Trump out. He's the president of the United States. I mean, it's a tough thing to topple even an unpopular incumbent. 
But the Marquette poll specifically of, of Wisconsin, I have concerns about just because the sample there is so different than their last poll. Like, for example, 90% of their polling universe was outside Milwaukee. Uh, about 75% of them were over the age of 50. And that just does not align with the actual voter demographics that Wisconsin's brought forward. I'm not saying Trump isn't strong. I'm not saying he's not competitive. Just that this may overstate a bit his advantage by pulling disproportionately from groups that are more likely to support him already. All right. I hear you on that. Coming up. We're going to talk politics and policy. We're going to do our policy segment coming up next. You're going to, you don't want to miss this. Andrew Yang, I mean, he's a contender. He's been in every single debate. We're going to tell you what he has to say about big data collection. That's on my policy, something on my policy to-do list, watch list. And we're also going to talk about the latest on Hong Kong and its impacts on U.S.-China trade policy. Panel stays. Garrett Ventry, Max Burns. Emily Wilkins, you went to a Big Ten school. I did. Go State. Go Green. Okay, so I went to Penn State. Who are you rooting for this weekend, Ohio State or Penn State? Oh, Penn State. Always. Good. Everyone, anyone but Ohio State. Anyone but Ohio State. I like that. Em, you're welcome anytime. Anyone (laughs) but Ohio State. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, proud Penn State alum. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. All right, enough politics. Let's talk policy. Let's get smart. All right. President Trump expected to sign the Hong Kong protest bill. There was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uncertainty about whether President Trump would sign this. But Senator Marco Rubio, Republican from Florida, the lead sponsor on the Senate bill, big win for him, big win for Rubio gets lawmakers to uh, agree in the upper chamber with their colleagues in the Senate. And then very quickly, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi signing that earlier today, signing the the, uh, reconciliation of it all. And now President Trump has signaled that he is, in fact, going to sign it. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Max Burns is up in New York. He's a Democratic strategist. Garrett Ventry, Republican strategist, insider. And Emily Wilkins, Bloomberg government congressional reporter. What the bill would do, Em, is say the U.S. government can sanction any Hong Kongers and any Chinese officials who are going against the pro-democratic lowercase d protesters. Wow, that's a big, that's a big, uh, big step. 
It definitely is. I mean, I think this is a very clear signal to China and to Hong Kong about where the U.S. stands, about where U.S. lawmakers stand. I mean, we've seen Trump not always sort of uh, address the issue of right. the protest. He's been criticized. He has. He has. I mean, there have been times where it seemed like he was sort of trying to have it both ways as far as appealing to China while still trying to note the fact that the protesters in Hong Kong, they are protesting for a democratic form of government. Meanwhile, Beijing says this is going to impact the uh, U.S.-China trade talks. Remember, remember Max Burns up there in New York, Democratic strategist. Remember, December 15th, is when billions of dollars worth of goods are going to be tariffed if, uh, on Chinese goods unless they ink the U.S.-China phase one trade deal. And the president, Max, has actually said a couple of weeks ago that he would add additional tariffs. So we're down to the wire today, really, in the next, what, two, two and a half weeks for, for President Trump and President Xi Jinping of China to get to some type of deal. That injects a lot of volatility into the markets. It injects a lot of uncertainty surrounding trade policy, a lot of uncertainty for farmers as well as small business owners for them to get to a deal. Max Burns. But we can all breathe a sigh of relief because Tim Cook and Apple look like they're going to be safe. <laughs> Because these, I, I hear the humor, Max. The way that <laughs> the way that this has been handled is is just a disaster. And as we saw uh, in the debate last night with Pete Buttigieg, uh, he told the stories of farmers who have been wiped out, who have lost trade agreements that have taken decades to build, and those are not coming back. And what we've seen in the data now is that the the collapsing crop prices, the end of these relations with China have led to a really disturbing rise in rural suicide rates. And that's something that cannot be separated out. This is a growth that has accelerated since this trade war started. Now, how Trump manages to thread the needle on that and this Hong Kong bill is anybody's guess. Uh, I, you mentioned, you mentioned Buttigieg slamming the, uh, slamming, slamming the issue of, of farm subsidies. Uh, and and he said that he would continue farm subsidies, but he notes that the payouts are not making the farmers whole. He tried to have it both ways, I thought, on that issue. But but sticking with U.S.-China trade policy for a second, Garrett, what are you hearing from your Republican friends and colleagues as it relates to what the Hong Kong bill will do for the prospects of the U.S.-China trade deal? I mean, obviously, there's going to be – I mean, I think with China and the U.S. on this, hopefully they can look at this and – compartmentalize it but I think that's pretty hard when you're when you're doing this when you're talking about legislation with right. Hong Kong it's such a touchy subject for the Chinese um, specifically a lot of the, the human rights violations that are going on there that has caused I think bipartisan uh, condemnation which rightfully so um, and rightfully so I mean when you some of the atrocities that are going on over there are pretty clear um, so in regards to the, the trade deal I mean I think the, they're hopeful that the Trump administration and Chinese officials are able to compartmentalize this and come for, come up to a resolution because at the end of the day, I mean, trade wars, everybody loses. Uh, Emily Wilkins, Bloomberg government congressional reporter. When you're up there talking to sources up on Capitol Hill, the Republicans that you talk to, uh, the ones that I talk to, I mean, they are just they're like, come on, by the end of the year, please get rid of these tariffs. I mean, yeah, many of them are coming from rural areas. Many of them understand how this is hurting their constituents and how the folks back home are being hurt by these. And so, yes, there is sort of a desperate need for to, to relieve this trade war, to find some sort of solution and agreement here. And President Trump, I mean, I just thought of this. I mean, if Speaker Pelosi is saying 
that she's pouring some cold water on the prospects of USMCA or NAFTA 2.0 by the end of the year, and now phase one of U.S.-China trade talks. Ugh, Garrett, I see you shaking your head. The president was hoping to at least get one of those one of those trade agreements done heading into 2020. As was Chuck Grassley. Yeah. <laughs> so you're right. I mean, seriously, they're no, no joke. I, what is Chuck Grassley saying? No, I mean, I think it's your former it, boss. Well, I, I think that. This is really, I mean, a lot of the, I mean, it's on Speaker Pelosi. I mean, this is something that, you know, you can't say we're going to walk and chew gum at the same time and then not get the trade I'm deal I'm so done. sick of that, that cliche. We all I mean, need to stop saying Because you're not. I mean, we're, we're, there, there's a full focus on impeachment, and there's no movement on something that has clear bipartisan support and clear bipartisan support in the Senate that would be easily passable in the House. Garrett, what I meant was I'm so sick of hearing people tell me that they can walk and chew gum at the same time. Like, I three mean, people said it to me in the spin room. It's really hard. You do spit you the walk gum and out, chew you know, gum? So, yeah, like, I don't think it's a good idea. Emily, do you walk and chew gum? I'm, I was actually told by my dentist several years ago I'm no longer allowed to chew gum. Wow. So. Max Burns, do you walk and chew gum? I tried once. It was disastrous. <laughs> 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 I do. Uh, download the Bloomberg Sound Off podcast. <laughs> On Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app, you can also find us on Radio.com. Tom Keen's cringing somewhere. iHeartRadio and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent of Walking and Chewing Gum at the Same Time. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio All-Star Panel. Garrett Ventry, Republican strategist. Garrett, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? One week away. I'm going back to Buffalo. New York? Yeah. Hi. My bills are seven and three, by the way. You're, oh. FYI, even though you beat us. Yeah, we did, but I, I, I'm having a lot of anxiety about this year's Philadelphia Eagles. More about Carson Wentz. Like, I, I can't I want to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> Max Burns, Democratic strategist up in New York. Max, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Turkey Day. I'm going back home again to Indiana. My, well, my part sister of Indiana. cannot wait to see me. Wow. Uh, Indianapolis. Wow. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, and you, are you in charge of cooking anything, Max? I hope not. <laughs> I'm, I'm still tired. I'm going to be sleeping off the impeachment. Wow. Wow. Emily Wilkins, Bloomberg Government Congressional Reporter. Are you going back to Detroit? I am. I'm headed back for uh, Thanksgiving with the family. So this is a lot of pressure on Kev this year. One week from today, all of the family is coming from Delco to D.C. And we're doing a D.C. Turkey Day at Cafe Milano. So, you know, it's going to be... I, I guess I'm not really hosting, but I guess I'm sort of hosting because I'm here. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it works out. Thanksgiving has always been one of my favorite holidays. And this is one of my favorite panels because it's time now for What's on Your Radar. We still don't have the intro music. Christine Barada's back from vacation, our, our intrepid, hardworking, unstoppable executive producer. We still don't have the music for the What's on Your, your Radar. Uh, uh, Emily, what's on your radar? So I actually worked on a kind of interesting story today. Senator John Cornyn, who's up for re-election in 2020, released this bill. It's called the Response Act, and basically it is meant to be a response to mass shootings, but without infringing on gun rights or Second Amendment rights. Wow. And so it's interesting because it's not just Cornyn who signed on to this bill. It's a number of senators who are facing potentially tough re-elections in 2020. You've got Martha McSally from Arizona, Joni Ernst from Iowa. You've got Tom Tillis from North Carolina. All of them have signed on to this bill. And 
it kind of speaks to sort of this interesting challenge. What, what would it do? So it would do a, a number of different things. It's a couple security measures, things like, hey, schools, make sure that you're sort of monitoring the internet so students are going to websites that should raise alarm bells. You can sort of make sure to target that. Um, it also prohibits the unlicensed selling of firearms, which is something that was uh, seen earlier this year uh, with someone with one of the shootings um, I believe it was Odessa uh, but don't double check me on that one um, and so Cornyn's got this bill out to do it and it sort of speaks to the need to for these Republicans to address the mass shootings that have gone on while still protecting Second Amendment rights. You know I think one of the things that we we need to get better about in the media is is you you did it great right there I mean that was perfect I'm not this isn't alluding to you at all. Uh, but we need to stop saying that one side cares about ending mass shootings and one side doesn't. No one wants there to be mass shootings. The conversation has to be about the policies and the different prescriptions that, that all of the different ideas that there are. You can vehemently disagree with the other side, uh, but I don't, I don't think any, I, no one in Congress wants there to be these shootings. I think there should be maybe even like a national conversation or, or a special investigation into it, a bipartisan commission into this epidemic uh, it's it's so incredibly tragic, and the polls just. I mean, I, I I a couple of weeks ago I briefly spoke at a at a class in at a, at GW, and I just a snapshot. I was like, "What's your number one issue? Gay marriage? Not not many hands went up. Economy? Not many hands went up. Um, environment? Not many hands went up. Mass shootings? Stopping mass shootings? I'm telling you, virtually every hand in that classroom went up, and the polls suggest that on college campuses, that's one of the biggest issues that is mobilizing folks as well. Great job. Can't wait to read that story. I'm come back and tell us about it. Garrett, what's on your radar? You know, I love judges. So yes, um, yes, you're the SCOTUS guy, I'm the SCOTUS guy. So no, I, I one thing that's interesting is uh, the Senate just confirmed President Trump's 48th circuit court judge. And that brings him to the fastest pace in US history of any president. Wow, which is pretty wild. So why impeachment is. is going on why these other things are going on, the president continues to solidify reshaping the judiciary with conservatives on the court. And that will I mean, that's going to be something that's going to be lasting for two, three decades, far it, past McConnell and Trump's time in office and maybe on this earth. It really is. I mean, that's a great point. Max Burns, what's on your radar? I'm still looking at Facebook. Uh, after yes. a couple quiet weeks that were, were I'm sure, blessed for them, uh, they've upset the Trump campaign by announcing potential changes to their policies. And we've also seen a, a growing number of other companies like Snapchat and LinkedIn and TikTok for the kids uh, start to distance themselves <laughs> from Facebook's political ad policy and just say Snapchat's going to do fact-checking, LinkedIn and TikTok just say no political ads. So Facebook, once again, can't seem to please anybody. Twitter was at had a presence at uh, the debate in Atlanta yesterday, and I was talking to some of the representatives from Jack Dorsey's club uh, at Twitter, and, and they were really saying that they just looked at that policy that they put out as simply the right thing to do. They thought that this was a policy that would really send a message in terms of the big tech communities. The subtext, and they didn't say this, the subtext to all of this is, of course, Facebook not following their lead. Uh, but it really allows Twitter and LinkedIn to get out on offense, Max. Yeah, and it's it's something that I think Facebook is struggling to, just by its size and by the amount of of dissension in the ranks at the senior level on what is the proper decision here. And I think Mark Zuckerberg went to the White House in part for his dinner with Trump to try and figure out what they could do without catching more fire from the Trump campaign, which succeeded only in inflaming the Democratic side again. So 
better luck next week, I guess. You know, one of the things, to piggyback off of that, this is what's on my radar, Andrew Yang, uh, he has been in all of the debates. He has consistently been middle of the pack. His campaign has been more critical of the debate moderators for not giving him enough time on the debate stage. He's got a ton of money, uh, and he's been a force in this in this, uh, in this this debate, uh, despite, I think, the most establishment folks here in Washington saying he doesn't have a chance. I asked him in the spin room about one of his policy proposals as it relates to big data. And take a listen to what he said about big data and how he would work with the international community on that. Here he is. We have to create an international framework to try and bring other countries into the um, the world community in a way that actually respects our data rights and our privacy. And that's not going to happen if we're all in different information silos. We need to help create an international standard. That was Andrew Yang, Venture for, Venture for America founder. Uh, he, of course, is also a Democratic presidential candidate. That idea of international standards, international regulations with regards to the international community on big data is not new, but it is now. it does now have a famous political face, so to speak, and Andrew Yang trumpeting and 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 uh, that particular policy proposal. Uh, that has been one of the that, that actually I believe has its stems back to the Obama administration, uh, and was something that towards the end of the administration they didn't ultimately decide to go with, and we know what happened in 2016. My thanks to Max Burns, Emily Wilkins, Garrett Ventry. Emily, your first time on the show. Would you come back? Absolutely. All thanks right. so much for having me. Anytime. Download the Bloomberg Sound on Podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. One week from Thanksgiving, what will you be doing to give back? You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.